about how the gospel is moving. The gospel is progressing. The gospel is going someplace. God wants our faith to be moving, to be progressing, to be going someplace. In Acts 1.8, the theme verse of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem in this upper room until the Holy Spirit falls on them. And he says, then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's kind of the layout of the entire book of Acts is the gospel, God's love, God's message, God's grace going out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's kind of what we're talking about here in Acts 8 through Acts 13 is the expansion, the movement of the gospel. A lot of people imagine that the Christian faith is static. It's stuck. It's permanent. It, it, it is like a monument or a great cathedral that was built 2,000 years ago, and it hasn't changed since. It is solid. It's immobile. It's unmovable, immutable. And there are aspects of the gospel, obviously, that are permanent. You know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the, uh, uh, and forever. The, uh, the ecumenical creeds of the early church lay out the basic doctrine of the, of the church, and those things don't change. But the church is moving, and our faith should be moving. If you're in the same place in faith as you were when you were 15 years old, that's not a good sign, unless you're 15. Um, If you're you're in the same place that you were uh, 10 years ago, that's not a good sign. Our faith should be moving forward, and that's what we're talking about. There's There's a geographic expansion of the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, but there's also a social expansion of the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today is how the gospel doesn't just break down geographic barriers. We see that in the book of Acts, but it also breaks down social barriers as God's love goes out between people, ethnic groups, racial groups, and tears down barriers between people. The main idea that we're thinking about today is this. If you listen to the Spirit, the Spirit's going to lead you And he's going to lead you, the Spirit's going to lead you, he's going to lead you in unexpected places, unexpected ways. The question I want you to think about as we get started today is, what are the barriers that keep people from faith? Or what are the barriers that keep you from faith? Or what are the barriers that keep you from sharing faith? As you think about people that you live around, people that you work with at at the office, people in your own family, what are those barriers that are preventing them from hearing of God's love? Or if you are kind of seeking yourself, what are the barriers that are preventing you from hearing or understanding or embracing this message of God's love? What are those barriers. For most of us, and I think for most of the world in the day in the in the world we live in today, they're not geographic barriers. For for most of us, there are there are social barriers. There are certain ideas or uh, worldviews or religious views or biases or uh, uh, ethnic or, or or racial barriers that that keep us from thinking that the gospel is for people like us or the gospel is for people like that. And, and the gospel that we see in the book of Acts is breaking down those barriers. 
So let me explain it to you. We'll just give a little background, then we'll get to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel goes out first to the Samaritans as Philip leaves Jerusalem. He goes out to the Samaritans, the arch enemies of the of the Jews and shares the gospel. They come to faith, they're baptized. And then God, we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit moved Philip from there to a desert road on the way to uh, 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 Gaza. And, and he gets the opportunity, the Spirit tells him to share the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch, tearing down those barriers. And then from there, in Acts chapter 9, we talked about this in our last series, uh, in Acts chapter 9, the uh, the pharisaical enemy of the church, Saul, is led to faith first by encountering Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And then uh, the Holy Spirit tells Ananias to go and share the message of the gospel with him. Uh, Scales fall from his eyes and he comes to faith and is baptized. And then in Acts chapter 11, Peter is led from Joppa to go to Caesarea and share the good news of the gospel with a Roman centurion and his family, uh, uncircumcised people, uh, Gentile people. And so this is the progression of the gospel. It has a geographic element, but, but the main extension of the gospel is not geographic at this stage. It's social. It's breaking down social barriers between Jews and Samaritans between Jews and an Ethiopian eunuch, religious barriers, between Jews and Gentiles, between the, the Israelite people and their uh, occupying army, centurion. The, the, the gospel is going across these social barriers. And in Acts chapter 11, mess, the message gets back to the church in Jerusalem, which is this Jewish church, that Peter has gone to Caesarea and shared the gospel with a Gentile family. And the question that they ask is, has the faith gone too far? That, that, that's, that's the issue they have is, has this message gone too far? Has Peter gone too far? Has the gospel gone too far? Isn't there any line which says that this is only how far it can go? And so in, the, in chapter 11, Peter is going to address that question and talk us through how we, uh, how this barrier got broken down that allowed for most of us to come into the gospel. I think it says a lot to us today as we think about our own faith, but also think about the world around us and how we share or do not share the message with the world around us, how we engage across these social barriers, how God would have us break down these social barriers. You ready? All right, has the gospel gone too far? Acts 11, 1 through 3, that's where we see this idea uh, first brought up. It says, Now the apostles and the brethren, brothers and sisters, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, those are the Jewish believers, all the church in Jerusalem is Jewish believers. At this point, this is maybe 36 AD, the, almost the entire church is Jewish believers, except for a few Samaritans who have come to faith and this one Ethiopian. Uh, when they find out, those who are circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. The question is, Peter, did you go too far? 
Peter, did, did you neglect this standard that we have as to who is in and who's out, who can receive the gospel and who can't? Did you break this down? Of course, this, these walls have already been break, beginning to be broken down as Philip went to Samaria and then Philip went to the Ethiopian and then Ananias went to Saul. But this is a line that the church is very uncomfortable with. Can you, can you imagine? I mean, Peter is the rock. He's the head of the church. But the church is very uncomfortable with what he's done. And in order to understand this, we have to have a little more background onto the first century Jewish mindset. You know, in, in, in Judaism, especially in the first century, the goal is to become godly or righteous or holy. God is holy, and those who worship God must be holy. And so the goal of the religion, of the religious life, is to get holy and to remain holy. Of course, the way you become holy is by using the sacrificial system of worship to have your sins uh, propitiated or, or taken away. But then you have to maintain that holiness. And the way to maintain that holiness is not defile yourself by being connected with those things which are unholy. The, the idea is, is that sin spreads and, and that we must protect ourselves from that. There are certain foods which are unclean or unholy. So you can't eat those. If you ate those foods, you would become unclean, and then you would have to go through a new process of repentance and, and sacrificial worship to, to be able to be reconstituted as holy, to be able to worship, to be able to be in God's presence. There are certain practices that are unholy. You can't touch a dead body or even a dead animal. You can't touch a person that has a certain rash. You can't even touch a building that has a certain marking or, or rash on it. You can't work on the Sabbath. You, if you do any of those things on purpose, then you're in grave danger. You have to definitely repent and go through a process of, of, uh, of sacrificial intervention. But even if you do those things by accident, you, you have to go through a process of being cleansed again. And certain people are unholy, are unclean. Uh, this would include sinners and tax collectors and many of the people that Jesus interacted with. But the big group of people that are unholy are uncircumcised people. Uh, those who are not part of Judaism, they're they are outside of the covenant. By their very nature, they are unclean and unholy. And so we have to protect ourselves by not interacting with them in close contact because their unholiness defiles us. That's how the system works. That's how the religion works, especially in this Pharisaical mindset uh, in Judaism, uh, in Jerusalem. There's this idea that we, we are, our, our obligation in life is to remain holy, and that is to abstain from interaction with these different people and practices and uh, foods. Well, Peter, it seems to the church in Jerusalem, disregards that direction. He, he goes into a Gentile's house, and not just a Gentile, but this is a Roman army officer. If you thought in that mindset of like the most unclean type person you can have, this would be the definition of that. Because he's a Roman centurion, we know that he has to uh, worship idols 
and Caesar as Lord, and the very nature of his job requires him to do unholy things. And so there is just great concern about Peter, not just interacting with the centurion, but actually going into his home and eating with him. Eating in Judaism is seen as a very intimate thing to do, and eating with somebody that's unclean makes you unclean. So, so Peter gets back to Jerusalem, and the whole church is there going, what what'd you do? And the word on the street is that you went to Caesarea. Caesarea, if you don't get it, is named after Caesar. That's the, that's the Gentile city. That's the occupier city. You, you went to Caesarea. Well, why would you go there? But, but that, that's, that, that, that's not even half of it. The word is that you went to Cornelius' house, an uncircumcised family, and you actually went in his house. And people are even saying that you ate with him. Well, what's going on? That, that's the accusation. You've taken this faith too far. You've taken this grace too far. You've taken this gospel too far. Yes, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, but not Cornelius's house, right? Not Caesarea. That's going too far. That's the accusation. And the church is wondering what, what is happening. Our, our leader, Peter, is disregarding everything we know about faith. And so Peter gives his answer, and his answer is really three different answers. It's the Spirit's answer, it's Jesus' answer, and then ultimately it's the church's answer. But before we get to that, let me just ask you this question. Have, have you ever taken faith too far? Have you ever gone out on a limb for Jesus or for the gospel or for faith? Have you ever done something which in your mind was faithful, but it made the church people a little nervous, made people a little uncomfortable? Or, may, or maybe your friends or, or, or maybe your coworkers, like, I don't know, that, that, that crossed a social barrier. That, that, that crossed a, a line. You took that too far. That, that's where Peter is. Peter has taken this too far, and people, the church, these are his friends, these are his brothers and sisters in Christ, and a literal brother, they're, they're saying to him, Peter, what's going on? I mean, I know we're supposed to go, but there's got to be a limit how far we go. So the Spirit's answer, verse 4 through 15. This is Acts chapter 11. But Peter began speaking and proceeding to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and birds there. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. 
the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me and entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in the house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. And, I, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Remember, the accusation against Peter is you've gone too far. I mean, Samaria, okay. Philip going to a particular Ethiopian eunuch, okay. But, but now you're disregarding this social barrier by going to Caesarea and by meeting with Cornelius and by sharing the gospel, going to his house and eating with him. And, and Peter's response is, I thought it was too far too. I mean, I, I didn't plan to go to Caesarea. I certainly didn't plan to go to Cornelius' house. That's the last thing I would have wanted to do. Peter says, I was in Joppa praying, this Judean city of Joppa by the coast. I was in Joppa praying. I was in Joppa meeting with believers, Jewish believers, sharing the gospel, sharing Christ with the people in this Judean city of Joppa. And while I was praying in the house I was staying in, I was caught up in a trance. I saw this vision, this sheet with all these animals, unclean animals, you know, pigs and snakes and crocodiles and whatever else on this sheet and this voice, Peter, kill, eat. I said, no, you know, I know the rules. I'm, a ho I'm holy. I keep myself clean. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be righteous here. Never. I would never eat that stuff. But God has cleansed, no longer call unclean. And the second time, the sheet comes down, all these animals, Peter, kill, eat. No, 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 no. I'm holy. A third time, she comes down, Peter, kill, eat. No. And then there's a knock at the door. And at the door, there's these three men from Caesarea who say, our master, our Lord, Cornelius, the centurion, got this vision. And in this vision, an angel told him, send for Peter. He's in Joppa. He'll come and share with you the words of salvation. And Peter's like, wow, you know, the Holy Spirit told me what God has cleansed no longer call unclean. And so he went to Caesarea, he went into Cornelius' house. He began to share the good news of the gospel. And he was amazed himself because the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles in this house. These are not even God-fearing Gentiles. These are not people that even believe in Yahweh. But the Holy Spirit falls on them the same way that the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 followers of Jesus, mostly Galilean followers of Jesus, in the upper room after Jesus ascended into heaven. The same signs, the same power, the same presence of God on these unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles as on these believing Jews that had been with Jesus. And Peter's like... That's the last thing I would have expected. That's the last thing that I wanted to do. That's the, that, that was not my plan at all. But the Holy Spirit told me to go. It was the Spirit's answer. And so the question is, is 
Have you ever been led by the Spirit in that way? Not in that way exactly, but have you ever been led by the Spirit to do what you would not in your own heart do? In your own mind, in your own ideas, you would not have done this, but the Holy Spirit says, go. The Holy Spirit says, do this. The Holy Spirit says, this is, this is what God wants. Have you ever, do you have that kind of relationship with the Spirit where, where you can be led by God? Maybe even to do something that your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers would think is strange or uh, that they take issue with. I just, in, my, in our day and age, in the American church, it just feels like it's rare for many of us to have that kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit that we could be led to do something which is not our, our cultural norm or, or what we've been trained to do. It, it seems unusual. But as you read throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit, even the Old Testament, is leading particular individuals to speak, to go, to do things which they would not naturally do. And, and it's just hard for me to believe that God can transform us or could, can make us, remake us in God's image, in Christ's image, or can change our minds and change our hearts if we're not seeking that type of deep relationship with God's Spirit, with, with being led by God's Spirit. I'll give you an example. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, before he founded Methodism, before he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was already an Anglican priest, and he left England and came to the colony of Georgia in order to try to evangelize the Native Americans in the colony of Georgia. This is 1730s. But he was completely ineffective, and he ended up going back to England. But it was after that, two years after that, in Aldersgate Street, where he was filled with the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden empowered to do ministry in a different way, which started the Methodist movement, to preach on the streets and to preach in the fields and to teach people who have come to faith to get into small groups where they can grow in their faith. All of that was not something that he learned in school at Oxford. It's not something that he learned from the Book of Common Prayer or his uh, Anglican liturgies, though, you know, he was Anglican to the day he died and he loved the doctrine and liturgy of the church, but it was something that he learned from the Spirit. You, you see, if we're going to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, we have to be led by the Spirit. And the greatest barriers that keep us from being the church that God wants us to be and the greatest barriers that keep us from being the disciples that God wants us to be are not geographic barriers. They're, they're social barriers. They're norms that we've been taught. They're, they're cultural habits that we pick up from our culture. They're, they're habits that we've been taught sometimes even in church. But but they prevent us from experiencing, seeing the, the mission, the vision that God has right before us. And so the church took issue with Peter. And the first thing Peter says is, I understand. I, I'd take issue with myself too. But this was the spirit that led me. The second answer is not just the spirit's answer, but this is Jesus' answer. In verse 16 and 17, Peter goes on and says, and I remember the word of the Lord. He's, when he says Lord, he means Jesus. How he used to say, John baptized with water. 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them, he's talking about the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So what Peter's saying is, I wouldn't have been there if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. But then once the Holy Spirit led me there, Cornelius said, well, the angel told me that you would share the words of salvation. So I'm like, okay, I'll share the word of salvation. This is what happened, you know. God chose Israel, made him his covenant people, sent the law. People couldn't maintain the law. Ultimately told a Savior coming. Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins. But then three days later, we saw him rise to a resurrected life. And we watched him ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to fill us, the same Spirit that filled the temple in the days of old, now living in us. And he sent us out to share this message of his redemptive love for the world. And, and now he sent me here to share it with you. As he's sharing that message, the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles with the same signs, the same miracles as the Holy Spirit fell on the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost. Oftentimes this Acts chapter 10 is called the Gentile Pentecost. And Peter says, when I'm watching this, led by the Spirit, I remembered. Jesus said, you'll be baptized with water, John baptized with water, but in that day you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I remember that we were baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then it hit me, these people are being baptized in the same spirit. The Holy Spirit falling on them just like the Holy Spirit fell on us. And when I remember that Jesus said, you'll be baptized, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I was like, who, who am I to then deny these people baptism with water into the church when they've already been baptized in the Holy Spirit? God's already brought them into this relationship with God, how am I then to prevent them from being in the relationship with God's people through this ceremonial water baptism? And he said that I, I knew that because Jesus told us that. And, and I just feel like when, when Peter is saying that, he's saying, I was led by the Spirit, but not by the Spirit at all, alone. I was also led by Jesus' words. I realized that the Spirit was leading me to fulfill what Jesus told me to do, to go to all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now these people have been baptized in the Spirit. And my job is only to baptize them into the church, into, the, into water. And, and Peter's like, that's what Jesus told us. And so my question for you and me is, do we submit our leading of the Spirit to the words of Christ. Because it's not enough, in my opinion, just to have, just to be led by the Spirit. We have to submit where we're led by the Spirit by God's Word itself, by Jesus' words Himself. You see, it's, it's, there's too much room for misunderstanding the Spirit when we say we're just led by the Spirit. When people tell me, well, the Spirit told me to do this, I'm like, did he give you a reference? Is, 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 there, a, is there a verse that goes with that? You know, I've had people tell me, uh, Pastor, you know, I, I feel like God wants me to leave my husband. And the Spirit kind of told me it's okay. I was like, did, 
Did, did, did you check that with Jesus? Because Jesus said some things about marriage. Paul said some things about marriage. Paul said some things about divorce. I mean, I'm not saying that, that the Spirit didn't tell you to do that. I'm just saying, did you check that? Because there are times in my life where I feel like the Spirit has led me to do things, which soon afterwards I realized that was not the Spirit, you know? My wife could tell you about some of those things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I prefer not to, especially when it's being videotaped. But... <laughs> But there are some times when I've thought I've been led by the Spirit and I was just wrong. So when we're led by the Spirit, we also should be led by Jesus' word. And that's what, that's what Peter's saying. I was in the Joppa. I was praying. I saw this trance. I, Peter's got an intimate enough relationship with the Holy Spirit that he knows the Holy Spirit's leading him. But even still, he's like, and when I got there, I realized this is what Jesus told us to do. The Spirit led me, but Jesus' own words led me. Well, when you're led by the Spirit, do you confirm it with Scripture? Are you, are you submitting that to Jesus' message, Jesus' word? And then there's a third answer. The Holy Spirit's answer, the Jesus' answer. And the third answer to this question, did you go too far, is the church's answer. Verse 18, when they heard this, these are the believers, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It's really a beautiful passage, isn't it? Peter's done, he broke down this barrier led by the Spirit. He's gone to Caesarea, he shared the gospel. Gentiles have come to faith. They've been baptized. He comes back to Jerusalem. Everyone's upset. They're all taking issue with him. He walks them through it. This is how I got there. This is what the Spirit told me to do. This is what Jesus had told me to do. This is why I did it. And everyone's like, oh, cool. They quieted down. They were like, praise God. If, I mean, if this is God, if, if this is God's decision, great. God has chosen to make Gentiles part of the church. God has chosen to give them the gift of repentance just like us. God has chosen to fill them with his spirit just like us. Great. It's beautiful. Led by the spirit, checked by scripture, and now affirmed by the church. It's not completely done because in Acts 15, they come back and they have a council and they write some rules around this and they, they, they make it kind of official. But already you can see the church is saying, okay, we understand. Gentiles can be part of the church. Great. I love it. Maybe I love it so much because it just seems so rare, especially in our day where we have a global church and all these different denominations, and even within our denominations, we fight over the Spirit's telling us to do this or the Spirit's telling us to do this, that. And I don't know if we ever check it with Scripture or if we check it with Scripture, we read it this way or that way. And it just, you know, in my experience, in my life, in my ordained ministry, it's very rare that we come together and we're like, oh, yeah, that's right. The Spirit said to do this. The Scripture says this. Great, let's do it. The, just the unity that they're experiencing, the, the, the oneness in this mission that they have for God, I just love it. And that, it provokes within me this question. Am I willing to be led by the Spirit? 
Will I go where God's telling me to go? Am I willing to submit myself to Scripture? Am I willing to, to change my opinion because the Spirit's leading, but also am I willing to change my mind because the Scripture is teaching this? And then number three, am I willing to submit myself to the church? Am I willing to honor the, the, the decision of the church, the direction of the church, the, the plan of the church? Because I think that this is really essential to actually be led by the Spirit. I, I, don't, I don't think the Spirit wants to lead us in a way that Jesus is not going. And I do not think the Spirit wants to lead us in a way that destroys the unity of the church. I, I think that, that this is how we get to what the mission is supposed to be. Am I led by the Spirit? Am I led by Scripture? Am I under the authority of the church? And I just believe that when we're led by the Spirit, the Spirit is going to lead us in places we don't expect to go. The, the, the thing is, is that this is the only thing that allows for transformation of us, transformation of the church, and transformation of the world. Otherwise, we're going to just continue to believe the things we've always believed, to hold to the cultural norms, to hold to the norms that we were raised in, whatever those are. The, the transformation can only happen because we submit ourselves to the Spirit, to the Word of God, and to the church. One of the things that I'm super excited about here at Christ Church is the way that Christ Church, uh, it feels like over the past two years, is being led toward uh, re-emphasizing and recommitting ourselves to ministry to children and, and youth. I, in, in my mind, this younger generation is the unreached people group in our midst. Uh, that to me, the, the great barriers to the gospel going forth are not primarily geographic anymore. They're primarily social. And, and oftentimes those social barriers become generational. There, there's a lot of other social barriers too. Some are racial, ethnic, um, some are technological. But a lot of them are generational. And maybe it's just because I've recently raised three kids, but I just see this younger generation, children, youth, even young adults, um, as the unreached people group, the unreached mass that's in our midst. I mean, all the statistical data kind of bears it out that levels of depression or levels of uh, suicide or drug use or medication use, all kind of bear out that this generation is a generation that's hurting, and there's probably lots of reasons for that. I don't have all the answers. But as a pastor, I just think that it's deeply theological, that, 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 these, that these young people, by and large, are never taught that they were created in God's image, that there's a God in heaven who loves them and loves the world around them. That even though that they sin and fall short of God's glory, that God loved them so much that he sent Christ. That God has a plan for their life, a plan for their eternity. That God wants to fill them with his very presence, the presence that filled the temple. That God wants to live in them and give them gifts and use them. I, I just don't think that this generation is hearing that message. 
And, and of course, they're not going to hear it, by and large, from TikTok or from social media or from their school counselors or from their soccer coaches or from their psychiatrists. They're not going to get this message. Not that I'm disparaging any of those groups. Thank God for school counselors and for soccer coaches and for psychiatrists. Not for TikTok, but for everything else, thank, <laughs> thank God for them. But, but the message of the gospel is not getting to them. And so that's why I'm just so thankful for a church like Christ Church and for the way that I see our children's ministry, our youth ministry, uh, just flourishing and I just thank you for your support and your leadership with that. Um, last two weeks ago, maybe, we had our Shine Choir up here with our, uh, with our adult choir. And so many people just said to me how wonderful that was. Back in, I think it was May, we had our first big Sunday where the children came in and they kind of were part of the worship service, helped us put together worship service. People told me how meaningful that was to them. And, uh, and so actually in two weeks from now, we're going to have our next big Sunday. The youth will be here. The children will be here sharing and helping serve in ministry. Um, but I just encourage you, uh, maybe that's not your calling, but if you're wondering what your calling is, maybe it is to help serve or to support the children and youth ministry here. Maybe it's something else. Maybe the Spirit's leading you to share the gospel to your coworkers or to your neighbors or just love somebody who needs love in a different way. Um, but when we listen, the Spirit's going to lead us. And when we allow the Spirit to lead us, that's when we experience God's kingdom coming. Well, let's pray that might be so in our lives. Lord God, thank you that you broke down this barrier that kept people like us out. That you spoke to Peter and you spoke through Jesus and you spoke to the church to invite folks like us into your kingdom. And Lord, we confess, we repent that so often we haven't done the same for people in our own community and people around the world. And so we pray, Lord, that you would lead us by your spirit. We pray that we might be submitted to your word and your truth and we pray for our church and the global church's unity around your work and your mission. We pray particularly for Christ Church and our mission here to reach this community and around the world in your name, and particularly for our ministries with our children and our youth and in time with young adults. We just pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, your empowering presence to break down barriers that keep people from knowing your love and grace and to invite people into this life-transforming relationship that you have. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel, for inviting us to be part of your family. Help us to invite others in Jesus' name. Amen.